Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. We're small but mighty, I'll say that. <laughs> we, uh, like I said, when we started, when I came, there was just the uh, quarterly magazine. Uh, we still have that quarterly magazine, but we also now have a website where we publish um, original articles every day on social innovation. We also do webinars. We have 15 or 20 webinars a year. We sponsor conferences here at Stanford. We have uh, two to three conferences a year. We just had one a couple weeks ago that we've been doing for several years. Um, uh, called um, Data for Good, where we focus on how to use digital data for social change. Uh, we also do some podcasts. Nonprofits by themselves uh, cannot uh, make the world a better place. Uh, they have an important role, but um, you know, they're a small part in, in any country, they're a small part of, of uh, what goes on in society. And so, the other significant actors, of course, are government, which, uh, you know, if you think about what is the purpose of government, it's certainly to provide for the social welfare of its people. Um, and so that's another important area where if you think about social innovation, social change, you have to pay attention to. And then business, of course. I mean, business today, uh, you know, arguably is the most powerful, you know, one of the most powerful forces certainly acting on people's lives around the world. I'm very pleased today to introduce Eric Nee. Eric is Managing Editor of Stanford Social Innovation Review, which has been serving global leaders of social change for almost 15 years via quarterly magazine, online articles, podcasts, videos, webinars, and conferences. Working at the intersection of the government, nonprofit, and business sectors, Eric has a unique perspective on the key trends and developments currently unfolding in the world of social innovation. So thank you very much, Eric, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great privilege to talk to you, and I look forward to hearing about, about the work that you do at SSIR. No, thank you for asking me to come on. I'm really uh, happy to do this and looking forward to having a discussion with you about what we do here at SSIR. Yes. So it's the Stanford Social Innovation Re Review. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the background to, you know, the setup and, 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 and development of the review and, and how you came to be involved, Eric? Sure. Well, it goes back to 2003. There was a woman named Perla Nee, no relation. Uh, her last name is spelled N-I, mine is N-E-E. -E. But Perla um, came to the business school and there were some people at the business school here at Stanford at that time who were interested in, in uh exploring uh, the idea of doing a journal on social innovation and, and that's something that she wanted to do although she wasn't a student or on faculty here and so they launched the publication in 2003 at the business school and when it launched it was a quarterly magazine um, that in many ways had the same mission as it as we do today so they really had some foresight on some important uh, things, I think, that we can talk about later. But um, it started in 2003. I joined a couple years later, just at the beginning of 2006, and I've been here for a little over 10 years. Um, before I came to Stanford, my background is as a journalist, and I spent 
uh, close to 20 years covering the technology industry in Silicon Valley um, for a variety of publications. I was I opened up um, and ran Forbes's uh, bureau here in Silicon Valley. I wrote the first cover story for Forbes on the internet where we had people like Jeff Bezos on the cover when he was just selling books. Um, I also um, went to Fortune magazine where I was a, a senior writer there writing a lot of stories and helped Fortune launch a publication called eCompany now that became Business 2.0 with Fortune's attempt to kind of have a Silicon Valley type business magazine maybe comparable to Fast Company. It lasted a few years but then it it uh, crashed along with the dot-com crash in uh, early 2000. So I left uh, Silicon Valley then and was doing a variety of things and came over to the um, Stanford when I saw this publication because to me it was really intriguing, the idea of, of having a publication focused on uh, what they were calling social innovation. It, I saw a lot of things that um, were you know, kind of somewhat similar to what I had been covering in Silicon Valley in the for-profit, you know, tech-driven tech world. Um, and then just, just to step back for a minute, um, before I became a journalist, uh, I was starting in junior high school, high, uh, through high school, through college, after college, quite involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement here in the U U.S., um, got involved in... Uh, a socialist organization, was quite active, served on the executive committee of this national socialist organization, did union organizing, a whole variety of things. So I, before I got became a journalist covering tech, I was uh, active in the, in the new left. So this publication to me was an interesting uh, vehicle because it sort of combined two passions of mine. One is uh, innovation and entrepreneurship um, and sort of you know, the tech-driven world, and the other is uh, uh, social justice. Right, right. Now, it's a magazine, it's, I mean, a review, it's a website, um, and I guess events and other things associated with that. Can you give me a, a sense of the scope of uh, it today? Yeah, we are, um, we're small but mighty, I'll say that. <laughs> we, uh, like I said, when we started, when I came, there was just the uh, quarterly magazine, uh, we still have that quarterly magazine, but we also now have a website where we publish um, original articles every day on social innovation. We also do webinars. We have 15 or 20 webinars a year. We sponsor conferences here at Stanford. We have uh, two to three conferences a year. We just had one a couple weeks ago that we've been doing for several years. Um, uh, called um, Data for Good, where we focus on how to use digital data for social change. Uh, we also do some podcasts, um, not as extensive as yours, but we do have some of those. Um, so we really have uh, our ideas. There's several reasons why we, why we do this on multiple platforms. One is that people like to consume information in different ways. Some people like to read, some people like to listen, others would rather be there in person. Um, the other thing is that we, while we're part of Stanford, we are a, uh, operate as a social enterprise, you could call it. We, the last two years, 
we've uh, broken even. So we had some grants um, that got us going, but we uh, we generate a lot of we generate through earned income uh, basically all the money that we need to operate. Um, and so having these multiple platforms provides us with multiple revenue streams. Um, and also, you know, because the, with the with the internet and the digital world, um, we can more easily reach uh, people around the world. Um, a print magazine, you can ship it around the world, but um, it's not the best vehicle for communicating. So we we have a global audience, uh, and uh, having all these multiple platforms enables us to reach those people in in different ways. Absolutely, and and um, social innovation. Uh, covers a wide gamut of uh, activities, I guess, and also sectors. I suppose you've got, you know, traditional nonprofits, um, government, I suppose, as well, uh, social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. So where do you situate yourself? Yeah, well, I'd say, um, as I mentioned, when the, when the publication started, they had a lot of foresight. Um, one of the things that they uh, believed um, and we just believe that even more as time goes on is that to achieve um, significant and lasting social change, it has to happen at all sectors of society, call them these sectors, you know, um, kind of jargony. But it's not, nonprofits by themselves uh, cannot uh, make the world a better place. Uh, they have an important role, but, um, you know, they're a small part in, in any country, they're a small part of of uh, what goes on in society. And so the other significant actors, of course, are government, which, uh, you know, if you think about what is the purpose of government, it's certainly to provide for the social welfare of its people. Um, and so that's another important area where if you think about social innovation, social change, you have to pay attention to. And then business, of course. I mean, business today, uh, you know, arguably is the most powerful, you know, one of the most powerful forces certainly acting on people's lives around the world. And so um, we believe that uh, it's also important to pay attention to business. So we, I'd say one of the things that's unique about SSIR is this cross-sector approach. There's many other publications around, um, but they tend to focus on just one sector or another, you know, just business or just nonprofits or philanthropy. We, we focus on all areas, uh, both in, what we write, but also our, our audience. Our audience is predominantly people in the nonprofit sector, but we have we have significant uh, readership in in all sectors. And like I said, we run stories from. We had one a couple issues ago uh, by Paul Pullman, the uh, CEO of Unilever, which has been in the news lately, um, writing about uh, building a sustainable business. We have articles from. Uh, people in government. In our most current issue, we have a case study looking at the office of uh, White House Office of Social Innovation that Obama launched and what impact that had on the way the government functions. Um, so we cross sector is is really important to us. And I'd say when we started, it wasn't as obvious to people, but I'd say today, most people understand um, why that's important. Well, absolutely. Um, the work that you do, the cross-sector approach, is that mirrored in how uh, social innovation takes place? Or is that uh, even an, uh, an interesting or important idea? To what extent should uh, or is there uh, cross-sectoral uh, collaboration when it comes to social change? 
um, you know, a lot of the way that organizations act is still very siloed. You know, non, there's a lot of nonprofits who spend, you know, most of their time, energy, thought um, functioning as, you know, a nonprofit just, you know, doing their work. Um, you know, businesses predominantly, you know, most of their attention is focused on, you know, making a profit and running their business. But I'd say there are a lot of examples and important ones where the cross-sector approach is important. So if you look at um, global health, when you're talking about uh, developing uh, vaccines and distributing them around the world, that's not anything that one sector can do by itself. So, you know, you've got um, governments have to be involved because they're the ones that, you know, operate healthcare systems in individual countries or certainly have to give permission for them to operate. You've got global pharmaceutical companies that are the ones that develop and um, and produce the drugs. Um, you've got um, philanthropists like the Gates Foundation who are funding uh, some of the research and as well as underwriting some of the cost of these drugs so that they can be distributed at a price that makes, you know, that's that that's mean that's low enough for them to be actually um, you know distributed in countries that are underdeveloped. Um, you have multilateral organizations um, like the World Health Organization. So I mean, if you if you if you if you look at that as one example, that is has to be a cross sector solution. But even if you look uh, locally, there's many examples. Um, Let's say, you know, something as nitty gritty as a food bank uh, that might be operating here in San Jose. They get a lot of food from, uh, you know, companies like Walmart. Um, they cooperate with government uh, to because to, the government, um, you know, often has uh, programs where they, they need food. And then there's nonprofit volunteers and, and people who are um, helping, you know, set up and run these. So. I'd say, you know, from the very local to the global, um, there's a lot of examples of uh, this cross-sector stuff. And, and when you look at some of the new and more, more interesting uh, social innovations, you might call them, such as social impact bonds, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real cross-sector solution. You've got private investment capital um, that's, that's providing the capital to, to pay for these bonds. You've got the governments who are backing them, uh, backing the bond itself. You've got nonprofits who are the ones that are implementing the solution. Um, <clears throat> so, and those things are, you know, started in the, in the UK um, and went to then uh, the US, Australia, and now around the world. Um, and, and this notion of this kind of a social impact bond is, is um, expanding into all kinds of different areas. So that, that's another example of, of a cross-sector solution. Yes, yes. Uh, do you think it's an important trend? The social impact bonds? I do think they are. Um, I'm not, I don't think any one of these is a silver bullet. Um, I, I think these things certainly have their place. Um, right now, they're sort of, one of the limitations is that you can really only tackle problems where you can uh, reliably measure the outcomes and that you can attach an ROI to it, a return on investment. So, um, because it is fun, it is structured like a bond. And so when you're talking about, you know, money, you've got to have real, you know, kind of data to underlie these. So 
there's there's certain problems like uh, prison recidivism that are really made for a social impact bond because it's pretty clear how much money society saves if you keep somebody from going back to prison. So there's a real there's a real cost savings there. Um, it's easy to measure whether they did go back to prison or not, right? I mean, it's, there's no like vagueness about the data. Um, and there are solutions where the real ones that are underfunded um, that um, keep people out of prison. Um, and so you put those, you find programs like that and that's really the sweet spot, but there's a lot of other problems that don't lend themselves, you know, poverty, right? Well, how do you structure a social impact bond around that? I mean, maybe somebody will find some, some clever ways of tackling uh, pieces of that, uh, but, you know, I'd say social impact bonds are good for certain issues, but not for others, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the, how would you characterize the state of social innovation today? A very big, big topic. I mean, are there two or three trends that, that you'd point to that you think are interesting? Yeah, um, there are. I'd say one of the things that we've seen here, um, you know, in the last decade is um, a movement from a focus on individuals solutions so social entrepreneurship you know the way it, it was characterized particularly early on was you know you get you find some heroic figure and they come up with a brilliant idea you uh, give them a lot of publicity and money and they'll save the world so I'm exaggerating, but but there was some sense of that, yes, right? I mean, yes. that, that you could sort of have some Steve Jobs-like yes. figure of the nonprofit world. Heroic figure. I don't think that is probably the best. Uh, I think there's some limitations to that model. Um, and so I think and other people have realized that as well. The other thing, you know, over the last decade, there was a lot of focus on making professionalizing the nonprofit sector. Um, and I'd say we were part of that. I mean, we started the business school. And one of the reasons for that was the people at the business school thought, well, if we can only get people in nonprofits to think and you know, act more like a business, well, then that'll, that'll be, be the trick. Um, and certainly <laughs> that's important, but that's not sufficient. So I'd say in the last five years or something, there's been much more recognition that we're going to solve some of these really <clears throat> uh, tough problems you need to work in, think of it as a system and um, work, work against that um, in, in, collaborative, uh, in a collaborative way. So um, you're seeing much more, we ran an article several years ago called Collective Impact that, that I think spoke to that yes. issue. Yes. How do you work together as a, um, a group of organizations, say in a city, trying to tackle K through 12 education. That's not something that one organization can do by itself. So you have to work collaboratively. You have to think of education as a system, not just education, but what's the whole system within which education is embedded? I mean, people come to school, but they live in families. They, you know, um, there's whole social structures that have a big impact on, and family structures that have a big impact on kids' ability to learn. So I think we're seeing... And then policy, um, I think, you know, public policy, people realize also that you need to, to address these problems. You've got to deal with, with the public sector. And, and so I'd say that's one big shift that I've seen, which I think is, is an important one, is people are being much more sophisticated about what it takes to make real change. 
right. Um, you know, the in terms of social innovation, you know, kind of more broadly, one of the things that that we definitely have seen over the you know ten plus years that we've been in existence is that um, the cons the concept is really be and and the actors and and the ideas have really become global. So um, we. You know, there's a lot of innovation and important stuff going on in, um, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. And, and you know, that kind of Anglo model of, you know, nonprofits and charities um, and philanthropy um, has really spread around the world. And so you've got, uh, you know, I can have conversations. There was just a person from Ashoka University, um, which is in India. They were here last uh, last week talking about the work that the university is doing and we were having a conversation and I could have been having it with, you know, somebody, you know, um, right down the street. And so the language and the ideas are really spreading around, around the world. Um, and I think, you know, part of that's because you've got, you know, global communication is, is easier to do. The other is that, um, you know, philanthropy, I'd say, is becoming a global phenomenon. It didn't used to be one, but now you've got, you know, thanks to the Giving Pledge and some of Gates' efforts, um, but also thanks to, you know, crowdsourcing some other more mass vehicles. You've got, um, you know, wealthy people uh, doing significant giving, and you've got significant wealthy people in a lot of countries around the world, from Brazil to India to, to China. Um and lastly, I'd say one of the things that I find interesting is that people are interested in innovation and because the, the models that most countries were operating under, um, you know, <clears throat> for decades after World War II, whether it was communism in China or, um, you know, social democracy in Europe or, you know, um, you know, the social welfare state in the U.S., those things um, broke, you know, um, and why they broke is a whole complicated question, but <laughs> but they broke. And, and so, you know, what what is going to be the new solution? People are looking around. I mean, in China, communism, it's a, you know, called a communist state, but it's not at all. And uh, they're looking for how do we provide for the social welfare of people? And, and you're seeing that in, in Europe too, and, and in the US and throughout the rest of the world. So I think that the time is ripe for people to be looking for new ideas. How do, what are the roles of different sectors? How do they cooperate? Um, how do we measure success? Um, all the things that, that is kind of within the field of social innovation, it's, it's, really you know kind of right time right place that's very interesting you mentioned the the uh non-profits becoming more business-like and i guess i have less uh exposure to i suppose more the kind of traditional uh non-profits there's a lot of energy a lot of enthusiasm certainly and a lot of uh noise coming out of the world of uh i don't mean that in a negative way but uh, uh you know, social entrepreneurship and social innovation uh for profit uh uh models and so forth 
what's what's happening with non-profits is, is there um uh, i mean sometimes they're seen as being uh, less uh, flexible or less dynamic um less scope to innovate um i just wonder if you one or two thoughts about what you think is happening there well i'm sort of of a mixed mind i mean on the one hand it's hard to argue that um nonprofits aren't innovative because if you want to talk about people finding very imaginative ways to do a lot with little. Um, nonprofits are probably a good example of that. I mean, you think about, um, you know, people talk about crowdsourcing today. Well, you look at a lot of nonprofits and they, a lot of them couldn't, you know, the way that they function is through volunteer labor and how do they get that. And how, I mean, that's kind of a really kind of a brilliant way of, of tackling an issue, um, you know, getting people to volunteer their time to help out. Um, Many of them make do with, you know, very small budgets. Um, but having said that, um, a lot of the people that are running nonprofit organizations are people that got into it because they had a passion about um, the problem. You know, they saw, <clears throat> they, you know, went on a visit to, you know, Haiti and they saw poor people and they just had to do something. So they went back home and started, you know, raising money for to to help people in Haiti not really knowing all that much about you know Haiti and the social structure and and um or really how to you know run an organization so while these people have very a lot of passion about a problem they don't necessarily have much expertise about the problem itself or more important about how do you run an organization and that is where i think business um skills are important because um, uh, a lot of the skills that one uses to run a business are, are can be easily transported to running a nonprofit or, or running a government. And, um, and in fact, you know, if you go to business schools like Stanford, they don't, they, they talk about, you know, teaching management, um, really not teaching business per se. So, um, and a lot of people in, Nonprofit world just don't have that that skill set. I, I run into a lot of people who started off um, really passionate about nonprofits, and then they—I mean, a very good friend of mine—and he's like, "I need to go to business school because I don't know what I'm doing." So they go to business school. They come out of that with, uh, you know, management uh, uh, expertise, understanding of organizations and leadership, and they go back and they're much more effective. So I'd say. I'd say it's a mixed bag. I'd say <clears throat> there's a lot of, I think sometimes people underestimate really how creative and innovative nonprofits are because they are under resourced, but um, a lot of times they do, the people running it do lack the kind of skills that would um, really help them out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, the other side of the coin is, is this growth in the for-profit uh, I'm going to say that again. Uh, the other side of the coin is the growth in for-profit social ventures of various kinds. And the goal there in, in many ways is to create sustainable, uh, certainly financially sustainable organizations. And I know that uh, organizations like Equine Green have seen a transformation in the, the number of ventures that are for-profit or hybrids compared to certainly five or 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that trend and any uh, insights you have. Uh, clearly, it, it cuts both ways, I guess. There's it's certainly 
excellent to see more sustainable organizations and 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 impact capital coming in to support that but i guess there are other considerations as well well i think i think it's it is one of the more important trends of the last decade um <clears throat> and i think uh i think it can make a big difference if for one thing if you think of uh if you look at how much money goes into the you know charitable slash nonprofit sector compared to how much money goes into the the for-profit world it's it's night and day and so how do we tap some of that money um how do we tap i was talking earlier about you know kind of <clears throat> organizational skills how do we tap some of the skills and knowledge that you know the for-profit world is developed about how to how to not just run a business but how to um how to develop products and services that people want. Um, and so to me, there's a couple things that, that um, I think are significant. One is the whole trend toward impact invest uh, of impact investing. Uh, we've written a lot about that. I think it's, it, I think it's, it's a great uh, trend. Um, it's probably not as big as some people make it out to be. Um, but we see increasing numbers of, of, of <clears throat> foundations as well as um, you know private capital interested in doing for-profit investing. And so just here in Silicon Valley, three of the biggest entrepreneurs, um, Pierre Midier, who started eBay, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, um, Lorraine Paul Jobs, his husband started Apple, have all set up LLCs, limited liability corporations, because it's a way to kind of nest within their their um, call it philanthropic capital. You know, a variety of things they can give money charitably, or they can invest in businesses. Um, a meteor has been doing this for ten years or so, and they've um, as is Jeff Skoll, who is also at eBay. And they, they have a pretty amazing track record of, of doing a, a, a broad mix of charitable investments and impact investments. And I think they've arguably done a lot with the money that, that they have. Uh, the other thing that's, I think, significant is that the emergence of uh, B Corps or benefit corporations. Um, and those have taken different forms in different countries, depending on the legal structure. But you know, basically, these are businesses, for-profit businesses, that are set up um, to instead of having the uh, the primary uh, goal of the business being um, providing a financial return to investors, they, there's there's equal attention built into the legal structure to the social mission of the um, organization as well as uh, uh, providing, uh, uh, you know, um, transparency to, um, the world about what, what they're doing. And so potentially it means that these companies, um, while they, while profit is part of their, the way that they, the biz, that, that they fund themselves, it's not the sole thing driving what they do. And there's, um, numbers of, you know, in the U S there's, over a thousand benefit corporations, um, and it's a little early to judge how significant they'll be, but I, I think they'll be pretty important. And then 
The third thing is existing businesses are paying much more attention to the social impact that they have. So I mentioned Paul Pullman from Unilever wrote a piece for us. They're one of the leaders, I'd say, in amongst global multinationals of paying attention to the social impact of what they do. And if you can get big businesses like them or Walmart or Coca-Cola or, you know, on and on to really pay more attention, that can, that will have a huge impact on, on the world. Um, and I think they're doing that for a couple of reasons. It's not just because it's the right thing to do, although for some people, I think, Paul, I think that's the case. But they're also doing it because customers are demanding it. Um, more, there's many surveys that show that customers um, will give preference to a brand or a company that, that they see as, as doing good. Um, and also their employees are demanding it, particularly young employees that these multinationals are going out to hire. Um, again, there's been a lot of uh, data that shows that young people, when they make a choice of what company to work at, will give a preference to a company that's doing good. And so there's, it's not just altruism that's driving business to do this. It's, it's in their self-interest. And so I'd say those are, those are some of the things where, that we look at, write about, that I think are really important. Um, because, again, I mean, business has such a huge impact on the world. And if it can be done, if it can be nudged to be, for that impact to be more positive, I think that's terrific. Absolutely. You've covered a wide uh, uh, range of ground there, uh, a number of, of, of really important trends. And I, I've interviewed Scott Wu from Obinjar, and uh, certainly what they're doing is, is very impressive and a lot of capital and uh, commitment there. Um, more generally, um, there seems to be, uh, albeit from quite small levels, uh, a lot of money coming into the sector. What's your sense of how much of that is really what you might call true investment capital, uh, true impact capital in the sense of it being in some way concessionary, either looking for lower levels of return or financing, you know, earlier stage riskier ventures. Um, I think it's hard to know exactly how much that is um, because you read reports about, you know, how much capital is in the impact investing space and it varies widely. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people are trying to, loop in all kinds of stuff like, you know, municipal bonds. Well, of course, you know, in some ways it's somewhat, it could be called impact investments because, you know, money going to help build, you know, water systems or something. Um, but that's been out there. You know, I'd say if, if we're really looking for kind of new money that's coming in, it, it's not significant. Um Partly because a lot of investors, while they say they want to do impact investing, a lot of them go, well, we can do impact investing and, and we'll make the same returns as you would otherwise. Well, if yes. you just sort of unpack that, it's <laughs> a little bit hard to believe that that's really true. Now, maybe you can find some amazing company. And a lot of people, there were some early investors in Tesla who in hindsight go, well, that was an impact investment. Well, Maybe it was um, because at the time, you know, investing in a company that's going to build all electric cars and they're going to manufacture them. You'd have to say that that qualifies as pretty risky investment. But, um, you know, the whole field of, of putting in, you know, money into alternative energy stuff. No, long, I don't think any longer you could argue those are impact investments because it's that's a booming market and that's great. Um 
but a lot of people still classify that. But so if you're just looking at real, you know, kind of, <clears throat> we run a, a 40 page uh, uh, supplement in a recent issue from the Gates Foundation about their program related investments, PRIs, those are investments that come out of their grant uh, bucket. Yes. Um, yes. But they are investments in for-profit companies, but they have to meet very strict criteria um, in order to qualify that the IRS puts in. I'd say those are all true impact investments. And there were, you know, and the Gates Foundation is does more of those than anybody. But if you read the stories, you'll see really how hard it is to do that. Um, and, and these, there was a, I don't know if you, uh, anyone has seen, there's a web, uh, news site called impact alpha yes that yeah. bank uh, uh runs and they they wrote a lot of those stories and 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 i say you know if you want to see real impact investments those are them and, and if you read read it you can see that it's very hard the gates foundation has all kinds of resources and they found it difficult to to find things to invest in and then to to um you know make them successful um as investments, not necessarily, you know, financial returns. So, but I think, I think it's growing. And so it's, it's, you know, kind of got a symbiotic relationship with some of these, you know, benefit corporations who, um, the reason they're set up as a benefit corporation is, you know, I think in part because they're likely to provide uh, lower uh, returns on investment than a traditional C Corp. So to the extent that that, that can grow, uh, I think you'll see impact investing grow to the extent that people, you know, really get on the ground out in the developing world, um, out in India and Indonesia and other countries where, you know, impact capital probably can make a difference. But that takes time and, and real effort. But I, but I see it happening, but it's going to be much slower than than people think. Right. I spoke to Jim Sorensen and he's a pioneer in the whole PRI world as well. He's 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 a big investor uh, on PRIs and a big believer in their potential. Um, and certainly, it's one of these trends you're mentioning that is uh, uh, very positive and uh, inspiring. Really, um, are there one or two trends that worry you about? social innovation at the moment one or two things that you <laughs> well uh, i mean you know social innovation doesn't operate in the vacuum so i mean to me the thing that's you know the elephant in the room and it's no longer just an elephant it is the whole um kind of reactionary movement we're seeing around the world um <laughs> and you know trump obviously in the u.s you have the whole brexit vote um but in china you know you're seeing basically you're seeing a movement uh, India as well, um, you know, more nationalistic, more let's close the borders. We don't want immigrants. Um, and uh, to me, that's hugely worrisome <laughs> for all kinds of, I think, you know, obvious reasons. But, um, you know, and I know in the nonprofit community here in the U.S., it's like, topic number one, um, not just because it impacts people's lives, but it, you know, they're talking about cutting funding on all kinds of government programs. Um, uh, a lot of the communities that, that these nonprofits serve, immigrant communities, poor people, et cetera, um, 
are going to be hit directly by this government policy. So while at the same time we need to be continue to look at kind of the things that we can control, you know, making our organizations more efficient, finding more creative ways to use capital and all that, I think you can't ignore these bigger forces. And so a lot of uh, people are now beginning to think like, okay, so maybe we need to find ways to be more engaged in public policy and, and politics, right? I mean, yes. a lot yes. of foundations are looking at, you know, maybe um, finding more creative ways to do some advocacy work. Um, I mentioned these LLCs. Um, I mean, one of the other things that they can do is they can, uh, they can back candidates, right? I mean, politics, the nonprofit sector is always sort of shied a bit away from, we're not political, you know, um, but uh, you can't ignore politics because um, it, it has such huge, I mean, just think about it, like in the U.S., you know, overnight we went from um, one, you know, kind of climate to another that, that really has a huge impact. So it's yes, it's, it's fascinating um, what you say. And I, I guess you talked about your uh, days in post Vietnam or during the Vietnam. And I know um, it's it's a terrible situation, but some are optimistic that out of this will grow some you know new forms of progressive movements and activities and i spoke to christy george from new media ventures and they specifically try and finance and support uh organizations progressive media organizations um that uh are you know trying to support uh communications and progressive change and she's talking about the uh, massive influx in the proposals that uh, they've been receiving for different kinds of, 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 of ventures. Um, what, what potential do you see more generally for this disaffection and so forth to, to actually uh, be channeled into some meaningful uh, political uh, change? Well, I do think, um, I'd say I think people are more sophisticated today about what, um, how to affect change than they were when I was <laughs> active. I mean, uh, you know, back in the sixties, we went from kind of, uh, you know, doing uh, sort of modern stuff to suddenly like, Oh, forget that. You have to have a revolution, right? We got to like throw, you know, have a complete revolution in, in, in order to really make uh, a difference and all the other stuff is not worth our time. I think that was a mistake um, for a lot, you know, and, but I think today people are more sophisticated about sort of inside outside strategies so that, um, yes, we need to um, be, you know, people need to be more involved in, in um, political change, but at the same time, you know, also think about building, you know, alternative institutions about um, strengthening the capacity of, of the organizations that are out there doing real work. It's not an either or situation. Um, but I do think, for example, funders um, are looking much more at um, what can we do to, to bolster this stuff. So the Hewlett Foundation, which is one of the 10 biggest foundations in the U.S., and they also happen to be right here in, in Palo Alto, um, 
they started something called the Madison Project a couple of years ago, looking at, you know, after James Madison, but looking at how to strengthen uh, civil society institutions. So if you're talking about providing a bulwark against someone like Trump, and a lot of a lot of the critique of Trump is that he's undermining, deliberately undermining um, civil society. So he attacks the press, he attacks, you know, um, as an example. And, um, you know, so the press, I think, you, since you brought up media, I think there's a lot of attention on, no, the press is actually important. It's not the enemy of the people, as you characterize it. And so what a lot of foundations are looking at, um, and had been before, but I think are going to be doubling down on, on supporting independent press um, and understanding its important role that it plays in maintaining a democracy, uh, just as one example. And a lot of organizations are trying to build these new kind of, um, you know, press institutions. Um, and it's also just strengthening old ones. I mean, Jeff Bezos, who I mentioned, you know, started off as a bookseller on the net. And then he bought the Washington Post. And uh, most people, I think, believe it. he's done a really good job at that, um, really strengthening, uh, you know, an important newspaper. <laughs> Call it a newspaper, but, you know, media organization. Um, at a time when they really do need support. The New York Times, for example, since uh, the election has seen a huge spike in uh, digital subscriptions. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which I think is a really positive sign. I joined too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, very important support. Um, such an important uh, bulwark on this false media. Um, which seems to be growing. What about Silicon Valley? That's you're located close there to Silicon Valley. How important is that? Uh, do you think? Uh, or, or, or I guess what, what's happening there? I mean, it, it, I guess timely. You're talking about uh, reaction to to Trump and so forth. Are there one or two things happening? Think generally, a lot of philanthropic capital coming out of Silicon Valley and a lot of uh, uh, outspoken, I suppose, uh, technologists as well. Yeah, I mean, there's several things. I mean, I think Silicon Valley is still thriving, um, still doing the thing it does best of, you know, taking new ideas and turning them into businesses, um, whether it's in tech, which people mostly think about, or biotech, or in, like in the case of Tesla, car companies. Um, you know, tech just continues to broaden the impact that it has on the world. And it, it really, when I started covering technology in 84 it was you know when i told people what i did it was like a, a quick way to end a conversation <laughs> uh, <laughs> but now it's like oh that's all anybody can talk about you know the internet and da, da, da. and it, and it's for good reason so that's continuing to go on i do think a couple encouraging things in terms of like you know kind of the social side of it um when i back in the 80s um it was sort of the traditional model. People that ran, you know, made lots of money from building companies. Um, you know, their whole focus during their career was building a company, then they retire, then they'd set up a foundation and it would operate more or less traditionally. Um, that really changed with the dot-com stuff. And now you've got people like, you know, Zuckerberg, um, right at the start of his career, putting a, a lot of money and, and time and attention to um, 
philanthropic um, effort. I think that's, and it's not just him, it's, he's very visible, but people, tons of people are, are involved in that kind of stuff. Also, people are um, looking at ways to use their skill sets to, um, for social good. So I, I think I'd said we had a conference, digital technology and how it can be used for social good. When we first did that conference, uh, the level of sophistication in the nonprofit sector about uh, data is pretty low. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's really changed in the last few years. And so this year I was I was hugely impressed with the people that came and what the issues were that, that they were talking about. You've got lots of organizations like Code for America and um, – there's, uh, you know, Bloomberg's putting a lot of money into this area. Midyear has as well. Um, but a lot of people that, and even in a place like Stanford, a lot of people, I mean, most of the people that go from here, you know, go into Silicon Valley in, in kind of the traditional fashion. But a lot of them have gone in to do other kinds of businesses, and you're seeing more of that. Uh, so like Kiva, um, yes. you know, that's really, it's a tech company, but it's focused on how do we, you know, raise money to uh provide that capital to people in the developing world. And there's a lot of, um, we had a story in our current issue on mapping. So everyone knows, you know, Google Maps, but there's all these alternative open source nonprofit mapping companies that are mapping places that Google doesn't go. I mean, you think Google maps the world, they don't. Um, there's a lot of places around the world where, you know, they're not gonna make any money for the foreseeable future. So these these other companies are going out and doing it. Um, then you're having you know companies like Palantir, which is here in the Powell in Palo Alto, so I know them. I mean, they were started with CIA money, and most of what they do is is uh, sorting through big massive amounts of data to find bad people. Um, but uh, they also have a whole unit that does uses the same technology to to look at. Um, how do we tackle uh, sex, sex trafficking, for example? So it's kind of, in some ways, it's a data problem. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on, and it's growing. Um, and also, I'd say the Valley is becoming more political. Um, you know, this immigrant thing that, that Trump did when he first took office of clamping down on, uh, you know, visas, well, just like killing visas from, you know, people in these countries and stuff impacted a lot of companies in Silicon. Silicon Valley operates on immigrants. Most of half the companies here were founded by immigrants. Um, they are staffed by immigrants. And so when that happened, it wasn't just, you know, anarchists in the street. It was like Google employees, Facebook employees were at the airport protests. I mean, really Sergey uh, ben, Brin, who's, you know, co-founder of, Google was was at SFO protesting um, those restrictions. So I think I think you're going to see, you know, Trump's like poking the beast here. I think so. <laughs> he may be surprised. He's making Silicon Valley a real kind of enemy. I think. That's very very interesting. I don't know. Have you come across Doug Rushkoff's throwing stones at the Google bus? Oh, <laughs> another perspective. <laughs> yeah. Um, that issue sort of died down. I mean, it is a real issue. I mean, there's, you know, Silicon Valley for, it, 
because of its success and because of the wealth has had a huge impact on prices, particularly of, of homes and apartments. Um, and given the geography of the Bay Area, it's very difficult and expensive to build out because uh, it's yes. we're on a bay and surrounded by mountains. It's not like L.A. or Dallas or something. So there is a huge amount. There's a lot of, a lot of resentment of the tech industry yeah. by people um, and these buses. Yeah, they would like. But yeah, I think also the idea of, you know, winner takes all, you know, these technology platforms, you know, who are the who, who cash out from these, you know, that they're being flipped continuously and yeah. ultimately they're built on the cooperation of the, you know, the members, the people, but actually the financial benefits are channeled to a very small group of people. And that financing model itself, I think, uh, well, there's certain questions maybe. Sure. That's all. That's true. Um, you know, when you look at something like Uber, I mean, on the one hand, it's an amazing kind of app. I, I love it. Uh, it's so easy to use. Um, but the way it's structured is, you know, all the wealth goes to the people that, that um, you know, that were the early investors or workers at Uber and the people who drive for it. I mean, you can have you can have arguments back and forth about, you know, is this is this um, a symptom or of the of it or is it creating the problem? I mean, I think it's a bit of both, um, but the whole gig economy and part time workers and such that technology is is playing a big role in in creating um it's a huge problem we just had a webinar on it uh yes. a month ago that i moderated and um it's real and and um yes technology the whole disruption that it likes to do yes um there's a lot it has a you know real impact on people's lives that too often people in the valley don't pay any attention to they don't it's i wouldn't say they don't care because i i think it's not like these are cold calculating killers or something but they um it's not part of what they think about um and but i don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle i mean it's not like the, 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 we're just going to go like well this is bad. We're just going to stop doing, you know, technology. Yes. And, and yes. uh, well, I think yeah, it was fascinating. The role yeah. of government, I think, comes in. I mean, government can well, play a regular. Bill, Bill regular Gates was talking about this, wasn't he? He came up with, he was talking recently about, you know, a, a robot tax, you know, that kind of thinking. Quite interesting. But I think government, I mean, we're getting Trump at exactly the wrong time because what we need is a government that, that um, doesn't isn't like trying to bring, you know, assembly line jobs back to the US, which is not going to happen. It's more like, okay, this is what's going on. What, how can we retrain our workforce? How can we provide maybe basic income, which is an idea that um, a lot of people are kind of getting enamored with, um, you know, is, is one of the solutions. Um, having a labor department that that will say that the people who drive for uber aren't contractors but they're employees which sounds like a subtle thing but actually has a huge impact on what um regulations apply to them and um i mean this is a very time when we need an active government um because a laissez-faire approach is not going to work 
I know it's got a lot to answer for. It's been wide-ranging discussion and, and some very, very big topics. Uh, Eric has been fascinated to talk to you. I just wonder, looking forward for SSIR, what's the future hold of your vision for the next three to five years? Well, I think it's an exciting time. I mean, we've been talking about all these issues, right? Well, this is all the stuff that we get to cover. So there's like no uh, want of things for us to write about, <clears throat> and we'll continue to do that. I'd say the big challenge for us is uh, to get what we do out in front of more people. Because um, we've been pretty successful, but <clears throat> there's a lot of people around the world who don't know we exist, but um, could benefit and would want to read our stories or listen to our webinars or whatnot. So our the big thing we're focusing on now is really finding more ways to get SSIR out to people. So we are just... A, about to uh, sign a, a deal with this Chinese foundation, which is going to create the Chinese SSIR and distribute that and uh, translate SSIR into Chinese and distribute it in China. Um, we're talking with an organization that wants to do that for, in Arabic. Um, because, you know, a lot of people speak English, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> and uh, we want to get and as we said, these are global issues, so we want to get in front of people. So that's one thing we're doing. We're also trying to be um, better at um, doing, you know, all that stuff one does on the Internet for, you know, optimizing for search and using social media and um, niching our email newsletters, all that kind of stuff to get our articles out in front of people and shared and... Um, you know, so we, we need to do a better job of that. But I'd say that that's our focus really is um, I think we're creating, I think we've gotten to the point where we're on enough platforms, we're creating good con content. We have, we kind of know what the ideas are and there's no want of uh, stuff to write about, but it's getting our, you know, getting what we do out in front of more people. Well, that's a great vision, Eric, and I wish you the very best of success with it. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and uh, all the great work that you do at SSIR, and I wish you the best of success in the future. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed this. I was, I was like uh, talking about uh, these topics. Yes, it's been a pleasure. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubation initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.